giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen, and with me today is Morgan Evans, an organizational designer and CEO and founder of Business Casual. Morgan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So to start off, actually, can you give me your definition of organizational design? What is that? (laughs) I love that. Yes. So (laughs) the way I think about organizational design, it's kind of the study and thought of how an organization functions in a zoomed out sphere, thinking about the people and their dynamics as the moving pieces. So it's sort of like a mind shift, almost like a like a scope, like you're leveling up and looking at it from the bird's eye view and seeing how these things interact. You're talking about the people involved, the career tracks, the workflow, like thinking about it as an ecosystem. So is that something that inherently you have to be a third party to the organization, like an outside consultant? I do think for me, I like that. It a little bit like helps me cut to the chase more quickly because I'm an external party. So I can come in and be like, I'm new here on the scene by virtue of me not being embedded in it. I do have a natural perspective that's a little bit of an outsider. So I think that gives me a jump start on being able to click into the organizational design mindset. But I don't think you need to be outside in order to be an organizational designer. I think it's really about kind of like how you think about it and whether you're thinking about it as a complex system or whether you're thinking about it as just like what's right in front of your face in your lane. So you take on clients for this and what kind of customers are they and what are they trying to solve usually? Mm -hmm. I like to work in two capacities. One is with larger companies. My background, I worked at Etsy for about eight and a half years from 2009 to 2016 and had a lot of experience with watching a tech company go from a small organization to a much larger public globally based organization. Um, So I like to leverage what I learned at Etsy and kind of pop in and do one-off workshops at bigger tech companies. Um, And in those capacities, I'm sort of taking a group of people for a few hours, usually workshop style and talking about how to do blameless facilitation for postmortems or how to make feedback be less scary and a little more approachable. So that's kind of one way I'll kind of help a tech company shift the mindset and kind of like tackle a tough problem. Like, okay, how are we going to learn from mistakes or how are we going to become a little bit more comfortable with feedback as a culture? The other capacity I work in and problems I help people solve are with smaller businesses run by people who are not necessarily traditional business people who are maybe have met with some success in creative fields like film and TV production, experiential design, and they've started a company. They're incredibly good at what they do, but they've maybe never designed a company before or been a manager or given feedback or talked about workflow and performance management. So I'll sort of come in there and help them figure out how we can design systems to best fit their needs and that are aligned with best practices in the greater world around how businesses are designed. I like that phrase, thinking about how to design a company. And it's something I think I don't really hear often especially with maybe tech companies and being in in that world early stage tech companies i think are they're usually really focused on product market fit or maybe that you know what's the first iteration of of the product uh and it's interesting to hear this concept of thinking holistically about 
designing the company? What are the elements that need to be designed? Yeah, even like thinking about it's a thing that needs to be designed is really step probably like one through five out of 10, because I think it often happens by default. Like we come together because we want to build this product or like reimagine the world in X, Y, Z way. So let's get to work and do that thing. And then by cutting to that chase, you sort of like leave out a really important part of the conversation, which is how are you going to know when I'm upset? Like, what's the best way you like to be in touch? Do you prefer texts or emails? Like, what are the frameworks in advance for how we're going to talk about tough things? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it is, it's a matter of just kind of like, I wouldn't say there's one thing you have to do for it, but it's thinking about if we're a group of people doing a thing, which what's what business is, what are the ways in which we're going to go about doing that thing rather than just running right to the races and starting to build that product and assuming that that's all the work. So there's no, you haven't put together a, a workbook like a Mad Libs with blank lines <laughs> that people have to fill in and then when they're done, they've designed their company? No, if I were to do that, I could probably just go ahead and hang up my hat and you know just be like, thanks for this interview, I'm out. Um, <laughs> in a way, I'm like, wouldn't that be cool if there were? But if that were possible, I wouldn't love doing this work or have a job because there's so many best practices. And then you learn that that actually wasn't a best practice and there's a new best practice. So I think it's so much more about thinking about what's working and not working in your company. And the thing that repeats over and over in my head when I do this work is like, what are the hard things? Like, what are we not talking about? The job that I do is how can I create the structure and design safe ways to direct attention towards the most hairy, complex things? Because I believe that, you know, the person who's running the company like knows how to do it. We just have to make sure that they can make the time to focus their energy on really sitting with the problem and developing the best solution. It sounds like a really important element of this is around conflict or maybe giving difficult feedback. And what happens if you don't have sort of process in place before you reach one of these times, which will happen, where your company is going through a tough spell or a particular contributor uh, is having a particularly hard time? I think, yeah, it's interesting that you've talked about like discomfort, difficult feedback. And I think it's it's partly about swallowing the pill of, okay, we're going to start to have to cultivate comfort with discomfort. I'm like, let's start doing that in little ways. Let's talk about like giving positive feedback. Let's talk about just saying something felt weird. You know, like my, my favorite feedback, that the, my feedback religion is that it's always better to be prompt than perfect with your feedback. It's better to just like throw up a flag and be like, ah, um, than it is to have the perfectly crafted statement that leads exactly to like how it impacted you and the feelings and all the moments that were at play. Because, you know, that might happen a week later, it might happen a month later, but research shows it will most likely never happen. So I think about it like building a muscle along the line and being like, okay, we know this this conflict, this tough discomfort, mistakes, it's an inevitable part of life and doing business. So how can we flex these little things? How can we ask for feedback when the waters are clear? How can we like invite feedback when we feel like something felt weird, but we don't know what it was. So it's kind of like build a little, like, like break the seal of what it is to sit in a tough conversation so that you're not faced with this epic, terrifying personnel issue or gigantic mistake that's just making everyone feel panicky and itchy and you have no idea how to begin. Yeah, it seems like that could lead to paralysis and that is not helpful in solving whatever the problem is. 
very much so. I think it's we're so like socialized to really avoid avoid these things, you know, like keep the peace. Like, how are you? Fine. How are you? And I think that that doesn't serve us when it comes to the type of communication and and comfort with like honest conversation and going there with like the frictiony heated issues. It's hard to do. And we're sort of socialized that you should keep the peace. But I, I don't think that that serves businesses in the long term. So the immediate thing that people probably think of is like feedback between a manager and a direct report. But I imagine this also applies to anyone in a company being able to give feedback across departments or up the chain all the way to leadership. Mm-hmm. That can also be tricky. You know, is yeah. it your place to give feedback to a leader? But if you're not, then, you know, the company could go in the wrong direction. In reality, everyone's feedback matters. Is that something that you talk to companies about? Yeah, I do. I, I, I speak about like thinking about feedback as data. And I, I think that it's a word that is just like used so much right now, which I love because I think it's good that it's making its way into the you know, business cultural vernacular. But I think we think about feedback as a negative thing when it's a very neutral thing at its heart. It's about data. So there's a trend now of companies being like, let's have the office hours, like let's have space for people, you know, like let's make an opportunity for people all around the company to come and get up to the microphone and ask, you know, ask the CEO a question about something or raise a concern. And I think there's sort of two things that need to happen. One is that We do need to think about feedback as a thing that is just someone's opinion. So there does kind of need to be a feedback excavating that happens where it's like, okay, this is a thing that happens, but it's not about a war over whose truth is truer. It's really a conversation of like, okay, this was your experience. Interesting. Say more about that. Okay. Who else had a feeling like let's, let's sit with this and talk through it, which is why I love the framework of a retrospective or a postmortem, call it what you will. Like, let's try and reconstruct truth and reality for people so we can understand where this feedback is coming from and what's underneath it. So wait, have you watched Wine Country? I'm so glad you mentioned because I can't help but chuckle at myself almost constantly. So the character, Rachel Dratch's character in Wine Country is, um, I think she's a therapist and she's obsessed with feedback. She keeps talking about feedback, feedback. And I was like, that's funny. Like, that's very on point. It's very zeitgeist. But there's a, there's an amazing scene over dinner where her and her girlfriends, the movie's about a, a group of friends that go away for one of their 50th birthdays. They go to wine country. Um, they're like, what is up with this feedback? What are you talking about? And she has this like really pat response about how, um, you know, feedback is just it's something that you need to get comfortable with. And it's a really important part of life. And they just totally roast her by singing a song about feedback because she's just saying the word so many times. Yes. Oh, my God. It's so on point. Yeah, I I imagine you feel even more like this. But I was like, I kind of hate that they're doing this in this movie because I've I've totally done that. Just be like, do you have feedback for me? Or can I give you some feedback? And then there's this ongoing theme in the movie of totally roasting her for being like, "Uh, can I give you some feedback? Uh, Can I give you some feedback? (laughs) Yeah, they make the song. It made me chuckle. And I watched it with my partner and she was like, oh, my God, it's you. And I felt I felt very exposed but it it made me laugh a lot this is how I'm trying to think about it I like to think about that as like feedback's funeral like let's like let's let's rebrand feedback because it is so we've just like dragged it through the mud like it is such a eye roll like literally feedback makes your eyes roll the the word so let's move on like let's we can still use that word but we need to 
rebrand feedback rebrand feedback like welcome to its funeral okay yes and let's move on I mean when I teach people about feedback I'm like you need to ask for consent and I think that's an important part of it but can I get some feedback I think that's a lazy question I ask it all the time but I'm trying to get myself (laughs) to stop even being like can you give me feedback on like do a little bit of work Mm. when you're asking for feedback like can I have feedback on be specific um, yeah like did I speak too quickly or can I have feedback on was my email legible did I get this point across at Life Labs, they teach people, instead of asking, as a leader, asking for feedback, say, like, how could I do this 10% better? Like, help frame your feedback. Because otherwise, it's just like, it's like a softball. I don't know. What does it make you think of when people say feedback? Or like, what made you cringe when they were like, oh, It made me cringe because I'm like, am I not going to be able to ask this anymore? I, I'm totally guilty of doing that. Because mm-hmm. I, I guess, like, we do need to sit with it. Because that's a really hard question. to. It's like, what do you do? Hard question to answer. Like, someone asked mm-hmm. me, do you have feedback for me? I'm like faced with, I've got two options. One is, no, that was amazing. The other option is, well, let me really think about, like, do I have feedback for you? And it's kind of like the, what do you do question? I could be like, well, I'm an organizational designer and I founded this company. You know, like I can do my song and dance or I could be like, great, you know, here's what I do actually. Like, here's my last great day or here's what's really I'm struggling with right now. So I like that we are collectively and in one country laughing at the word feedback because I think we've like piled too many things into it and it's kind of lost its meaning. And I think that's what that scene was saying. Yep. But there is like what you're raising here of this kind of like complicated issue of how feedback interacts with power and authority in mm-hmm. the workplace is a really interesting one. And I think I mentioned like CEOs giving office hours as a way that I think is comes from a good place. But I think there's work that needs to be done in order to make it because what I tend to see when that's happening is kind of like softball feedback and soft mm-hmm. questions sort of around the elephant in the room. And then maybe every so often someone is courageous or misguided enough to call it out. And then that's a big flare up. And it, you know, I, I think there should be more in the middle where it's like, how can we make it safe for people to raise concerns? And maybe it's not publicly in front of the company, but how can there be systems and just general conversations? I think start with peer-to-peer. It starts with peer-to-manager. Like these conversations like have to exist like blades of grass before they can be a gigantic 100-year-old oak tree. And what's usually happening at these companies when they decide to bring you in to help? Is something coming to a head that they're trying to solve? The two ways I work with clients are sort of like one-off workshops and then ongoing uh, support in terms of like a little bit of more of like a retainer model. I'll be there for a day a week, a few hours a week, um, doing like sort of coaching type calls with managers. Usually I'm working with the CEO, the person in charge of the company. It's usually when they're on the precipice of rapid growth or when they're dealing with feelings of just sort of overwhelm and isolation being at the helm of this company that is growing and meeting with success. But they are a little bit banging their heads against the wall when it comes to how to perhaps deal with conflict between teammates on their team, think about how to hire the next person, think about how like, okay, I I know I should create an employee handbook, but I'm not sure like what it should say or how do I begin that work? Or I need to do something like sexual harassment training, but I want it to be in a way that matches with my culture and really has the conversation around it. So it's kind of companies running into the issues that happen when it's a small organization started a tiny bit informally needing to put in a little bit of structure, but not wanting to like, like, you know, like read the textbook about like HR and ops Mm -hmm. and wanting to really like have someone come in there and listen and help them direct their attention and do the work toward creating the structure that matches their organization. Is it usually first time founders? 
Oh, yeah, exclusively I work with first-time founders when I'm working with companies because, you know, it's part of like the nature of the beast is they're doing this for the first time and they're like, I don't know where to begin, but I know that I need to give my people some more structure, but I don't know if I need to start by writing a job description or doing annual performance reviews. And do you have any feedback for first-time founders about how to start thinking about this, uh, how to start designing their company and putting some of these practices in place ahead of time? The, the first thing that popped into my head was a little bit like, you know, the work you need to do. So like the thing you're pushing off, what is the way you can incentivize yourself to get that work, whether it's hiring someone like me or dedicating an hour a week toward like working through this stuff, but sort of like holding yourself accountable toward the work around the work, which is really hard to do, but just being mindful that that's going to be a huge part of your job in the way that when you're first becoming a manager, you're taking on a whole nother job around your job. It makes me think that there probably needs to be some company-wide or like leadership goals around it. It tends to, when it comes down to it, what the founder is going to focus on or, or what mm-hmm. the company has kind of written down as the OKRs or, or what yeah. have you. So yeah. making sure within that realm, you're, you're carving out some space for something around a company design. I think that's a really good point. And you just reminded me of another thing. This is just like a small, uh, something I've seen come up a lot is that often um, founders of smaller companies or you know, first time founders will sort of feel like, you know, like titles don't matter so much. Or I, I often press my clients to be like, okay, you're bringing on this new person. Like, let's talk through their workflow and who are they going to report to? And I find that people often punt on that question. They're kind of like, oh, you know, we'll figure it out. Or like, we'll work as a team. But like really pressing people who are growing their companies to a little bit, you know, think about like when people start or when you do a reorg, people want to know who their new boss is. And if you're uncomfortable with that term boss, like mm-hmm. explore what that means and know that, it might not matter to you because you founded this company and it, you understand how it works because it's it's part of you. But for other people, clarity around who they report to and you know what vacation days mean and what time work has, work starts. I think that there's a reluctance to be explicit about those things because you know if you're starting a small creative business, it's because you don't want to be corporate necessarily. But um, being clear is your friend um, and it's going to make people happier and more friendly at work in the long run, even though it sometimes feels a little bit kind of like robotic at first. So you're saying you can do it and not be corporate-y? I'm saying that. It's possible. There's a way. (laughs) Yeah. Corporate is kind of like feedback. I think like we're like, these are monster things, but they exist for a reason. Right. Are there like certain inflection points in a company's growth that you've seen as being a trend between companies, whether that's mm-hmm. team size or whether that's, you know, if it's a startup, maybe it's like a investment round where you're like, mm-hmm. okay, at five people, these problems arise. At 10 people, these problems arise. When you hit 20, now, you know, you need to make sure you're ready for X, Y, Z. Yeah, there's, I haven't mapped this exactly to, I think it really depends on like, you know, the industry in terms of like the number of employees, but there's a trend I've for sure noticed with almost all clients I've worked with, there's this point where the founder, the CEO wants to move out of the day to day. And like, sometimes that means growing the company a little bit or giving more responsibility to, you know, like 
grooming a leader from within. Sometimes it means hiring more senior leaders. But this this idea where that, that shift pivot moment where the leader goes from doing the work along with everyone else to wanting to be a little bit more removed from the work. Um, and I think that's a really complicated moment organizational structure-wise and identity-wise for the, the founder, CEO person. So that's a moment that I think is good to sort of have on your horizon. And I think it a little bit starts with just natural, like getting a little bit burnt out on it, but also wanting to build something for the long term and knowing that, okay, I need to download the ways in which I do business and the ways in which, like what I think are culturally, you know, the things that are most culturally important to make us do work specifically the way we do work to make that be kind of becoming a part of a bylaw of the company or something we screen for in new employees. Um, so that, that's kind of like a more existential moment rather than like a phased thing. But I think that's something that will inevitably happen with a company that is successful and with a founder that wants it to keep growing. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are the most important things that a founder can do for their company, you know, besides the day to day? I think the most important thing that a founder can do for their company is to say things out loud. Like I hesitate to say, you know, like write down the mission, vision and values because I think that's become sort of a watered down process that people do a little bit to tick the box and isn't always done. Hmm. Uh, It sometimes is over engineered or like, wait, what's the difference between my mission and my vision, my values and my OKR? Like it's this cascading list of, you know, like. (laughs) inspiring demands that's like mottos and it's there's so many of them and they can be so abstract and taxonomically confusing that it doesn't serve as a guiding lighter than north star that it's or copied from a company that they admire (laughs) that they just think they should copy those values over totally yeah there's this sort of like molecular mimicry of it like well what are we reimagining and how will we change (laughs) the world that like like I love writing and inspiring people in language. I think that's powerful. And I think as a leader, it's it's your job to do that. But I do think that sort of taking those things and translating that into the day-to-day and being like, okay, we pledge to design events that make this happen for our clients. Great. So what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of what we do with our waste at the event? What does that mean in terms of how many exclamation points are in our email? How What our response time is? So kind of like boiling the really highfalutin mission statement language into what that can look like in terms of decisions for the day-to-day. And that, you know, if you're eventually going to want to move a little bit further away from the day-to-day and you're hiring great people to do the work and your company's growing, you're going to have to do a little bit of almost like like bird watching and examining the way you as a leader do your work so that you can translate that into a list or just a little bit of an instruction for like explaining why you do certain things you do and what makes the DNA of your company so that it can endure. And I saw you also offer conflict mediation. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure you can't really share any examples, but I kind of want an example. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What are some like gnarly conflicts that you've had to deal with? You know, it's funny. I think a lot of the work, and I did my mediation training at this amazing organization called the New York Peace Institute, did an apprenticeship there. And one of my mentors when I was training there spoke about how like in mediation, I think this is true when like coming in and sort of 
hearing a conflict, you're meant to not be biased clearly in it. But, you know, bias is a part of being a human. So when you get in there, you're not arbitrating and picking who the winner is, but your role you is don't to raise one hand <laughs> at the end of it. Yeah, unfortunately not. You know, you don't like vanquish the loser. Um, <laughs> but your job is to recreate with equal vividness both of their worlds so that they can hmm. they can kind of peep into each other's world and get a little bit of a shift the style of mediation that I that I practice is called transformative mediation. So it's about actually just being in there and listening to the other party's side and sort of sitting with your own perception of your side and understanding the underlying needs and interests and kind of thinking about it not as, you know, conflict is a very, it's an intense word and it kind of implies like an either or, a binary, a winner, a loser, a right, a wrong. So I think I just, I'm saying that as a preface before I give you a gnarly example that like, <laughs> Right. The presenting conflict is not usually the deeper conflict and the deeper conflict is not necessarily a conflict. You know, I'm presented with like, these people just don't get along. Like, what could it be? I worked with, with one company where it was really, they were fighting all the time. And like part of like what, what we did in our work together was like understand what that was about. And it ended up um, after some work together. And was it course, two peers like yep. on the same team? It was two peers in this case. And we ended up, sitting with it and realizing that it, it had gotten blown up into this idea of, I don't know if, if you're committed to this company or you seem really distracted and you're not paying attention, you're not committed to this place. There was, there was an argument about commitment mm -hmm. and we were able to like bring it back down to earth in this way where what we walked out with was, it sort of came out, the, the issue was that one couldn't reach the other one on chat often enough and they were like inferring from that 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 person wasn't committed to the job. So we were able to come to an agreement around um, they're like, okay, well, what would it mean for them to be available? What would a like, reasonable response time be? Well, okay, if they could get back to me within 20 minutes. And then the other person's face lit up and they're like, okay, I can check that every 20 minutes. I just can't have it pinging me all hours of the day because I'm on the phone, this, that, and the other. So wow. I bring up this, yeah, like not because That's really so, cool. That's I some know. serious root cause kind of digging that's, yeah. that ended up being super basic. Yeah, it's and it's funny. I like I always cringe at the word root cause, partly because oh, I'm sorry. like there. No, no, <laughs> I I'm, I don't mean to jump on you about that. I think that it's easy to be like that was the root cause, but that's just one. Like that's mm. like just a branch of it. The root cause is people are confusing and like saying words and hearing different things. Like that that's the root cause. We're inferring things instantly from people's you know like the tilts of their heads and the tone of their voice. In the first moment of interaction, we're like often running in two different worlds, even though we're having a conversation maybe in the same room. So yeah, not to say like we can't use the word root cause. I just <laughs> no, think that, that makes sense. One of the most powerful things I think I learned in an early on leadership training in my career was about how quickly we make assumptions about people's decisions mm. and how dangerous that is in not asking like a simple why question, you know? Yeah. You know, an example could be someone taking a day off when the team has a big project due mm -hmm. and, you know, the assumption is that, well, they're, they're not really committed mm -hmm. to this project instead of actually talking to them about, you know, what's going on and learning, you know, they've got a personal issue at home or, you know, a medical yeah. issue and something really simple. But yeah, our mind goes straight to the, I know why they're doing it and it must be some malicious reason. Totally. I, I think that's such a great example. And I love how you switched, how you're like, you know, we don't know why they're doing it, but then you changed it to being like, we don't know what else is going on for them. Mm. Because even like, what? how could you? How is it not obvious to you? Like my world and me at the center of it. 
But the truth is everyone's at the center of their own world. And like my work is about creating the imperative for leaders to make room for the context. And I think we like want to get to work. We want to do the job. We want to build the product. We want to ship. And it's easy. It's like, it's just a short-term game to not sit with those things, like the context and not raise up to that person and be like, man, when you took that time off, you know, when you took that vacation right before, like we had to ship this product, it created this X, Y, and Z for me. Like, can you like talk more about that? Or this was my experience. And I wanted to raise that with you rather than Mm -hmm. rolling our eyes, back channeling, never talking to them about it. Because yeah, that example is such a, we, we often infer maliciousness or just we, we ascribe sometimes malicious motivations to things when we just don't know the whole story. I'm curious, because I saw you also have change management as you know a core area that, that you can help companies with. Mm-hmm. If you've ever worked with companies that have recently been acquired by another mm-hmm. company or merged with another company. Yeah, I have I have worked with that. And I think that's a joke that like change management, it's like everything and nothing. Like when are we not managing change? Like just by waking up in the morning, it's like nature of the beast. But I like mergers and acquisitions are because that's that's like a sea change. It's like yesterday we weren't acquired and tomorrow we will be. So this is a moment where like classic change management in terms of, okay, what's the messaging? How will the shift happen? How are we going to cascade this down so that people feel empowered in the face of a gigantic change. Yeah. The reason my mind went there was because I was part of an acquisition once and we talked as a company about change management. (laughs) And they were like, by the way, this is something that we're trying to think about because the founders are fully informed. And then if Mm -hmm. you go down to the individual contributors, they're probably like six weeks behind or you know yeah. it was like some, they had like mapped out something like that so they're like we need to take the time for everyone to make the adjustment that the founders have had the time to do because they've been yeah. in the talks with the acquiring company they've decided it's a good decision we need to allow for that time and space and emotions that are going to happen mm-hmm. you know excitement betrayal yeah. anger sadness and think about how we make that transition into the new company and also be okay with people being like, okay, I've, I've served my time and mm-hmm. I'm ready to move on. That's so conscientious. Even just thinking about like time stamping it as like the people further down the chain are literally six months behind. So how are we going to make it feel safe and not expect them to turn on a dime. What Even if we deliver this very thoughtfully crafted communication plan with an amazing email, maybe it has gifts or maybe not. And then there's a <laughs> town hall and we've got focus groups and talking points. Like you can be so thoughtful about that, but I feel like that's the crux of it is like allowing this space for the emotion and the flare up and then people to be like, this might not work for me and, and that's okay. Yeah. Did, how did it feel for you? Oh, I went, I went through the whole range. Yeah. yeah, it was like, this is really exciting because it's a positive outcome on mm-hmm. paper. Mm-hmm. But this is really sad because we're joining a very big company and we're no longer this little startup engine that's tight knit. There is fear that we're going to mm-hmm. lose our culture and also lose like the product th- that yeah. we were working on. We're like, what happens with the product that all of us have been really pouring our our lives into mm-hmm. so yeah i did the i did the full roller coaster yeah that's great that there was room for it because i think there is there's a lot of different stances and i think 
the culture is changing around, you know, the role of emotions at work. And my position is they are there. It's just a question of whether or not we talk about them, which trickles into a question of whether or not we send people the message that they should feel shame about them or whether we say those are part of you. Let's work mm-hmm. through them together. So what actually led you into this field? I'd love to learn a little bit about your background. So I worked at Etsy. I kind of had a, a front row seat to watching a company grow. I, I was there yeah, for... Yeah, 2009. What was going yeah. on at Etsy in 2009? Etsy was baby brand new. Just, I mean, not not baby, but like... How many people toddler. were there? There was around 40 when I started. Wow. My first job at Etsy was an intern as a screen printer. So I... What? We, yeah, I worked there. And early, um, the ways in which we were growing the Etsy community was by going to craft fairs and explaining to people like Etsy is like this, but online. And we were handing out t-shirts and tote bags, like building it um, oh my a gosh. little bit like you would build like a fan base for a band. Yeah, that's one really of the exciting. early founders was someone who had like been in a band and he's like, this is how you do it. And we met so many amazing people and built a core human catalyst for the company, which which was really exciting. And then I was I did I was community manager. We ran Etsy had these and still has Etsy teams, which are self-organized groups of Etsy sellers that come together and build support for one another. Sometimes they're like I remember there was a team of people named Amy, but then it's also like Needle Felters United or expats living in France. Um, <laughs> so there was all kinds of teams, and we had a grants program, and I sort of like was doing a lot of grassroots community building. And then I transitioned into working in learning and development, working in HR. I worked closely with Etsy's CTO, John Alspa, who's a close friend of mine. And I got really into this idea of blamelessness and how to facilitate conversations around blamelessness while I was doing a lot of manager training as the company was building. And we were thinking about like, what is the DNA of this place? Like, how do we make it durable and also flexible? And what year was that around? I started working in learning and development in, I believe that was like 2012. And what year was it founded? I'm like piecing together this timeline in my head. 2004? I'd have to double check on that. Okay. And actually, I'm assuming that everyone knows what Etsy is, but maybe that's wrong. What what is Etsy? Yeah. So Etsy is an online marketplace for handmade and vintage goods. At least that's what we, that was our little tagline back in the day. That was the memorized. Mm -hmm. That was my little thing. But Etsy is amazing. I joined Etsy in 2009 at a really interesting time after the recession where Etsy was a place for artists to make a living. And that was what made me want to work there. It was really inspiring, kind of like using the internet to connect people around their love of things and to find unique products, like actual things, like amazing things you couldn't find anywhere else. So I sort of translated my community building in the outside, um, like bringing people to Etsy. I, I sort of transitioned my focus onto internal, how to build community within the company. I worked on the employee engagement team and then found my way into learning and development and working in HR, learning about facilitating, talking a lot about the culture. One of the favorite things I did at Etsy was running postmortems around with like the tech side of the organization. I would come in there as someone who did not, I'm not an engineer, and I would come in there and be like, okay, so what happened? Like, let's talk it out. And I would just ask these questions like, well, what is a load balancer? Well, how, how do we normally, like, what does this dashboard mean? Because I was like the facilitator, I had, in a way, permission to be right. dumb. So I could ask questions that everyone assumed they knew the answer to and probably did, but I'd never said out loud before. Like, that's kind and of like- And I imagine there were differences between oh, people's yeah, answers, people, surprisingly to them. 
Yeah, exactly. And for me, I was like, when, if someone's like, oh, I didn't know you thought about that. Like, oh, I never, I don't know. And I talk about like building the whole landscape. And that that's like been my MO to this day is sort of like, how can we say the assumptions, like name the unnameable? Like, how can we say more stuff out loud? I left Etsy in 2016. I went and got a degree in organizational change management at the new school. And I've been consulting on my own since then, which I love because it enables me, as we talked about at the beginning, to kind of in this organizational designer, kind of like wearing that cape, I get to work with all these amazing, smart, interesting people solving problems that are unique to them, but I'm starting to see themes there and I can leverage that into helping them feel less isolated and more equipped to solving them. Amazing. Going back to like thinking about inflection points, were there Mm -hmm. some standout inflection points at Etsy while you were there that immediately come to mind where there were, you know, cultural or organizational shifts? Yeah. When I started at Etsy, it was it was a pretty small crew. And there was like a group of us that would kind of like hang out after work sometimes. And a few years in, I remember I was like, oh, interesting. Like, I guess people aren't hanging out as, as much as we used to. And then I kind of looked around and I noticed that it wasn't that people stopped hanging out, but that there were different groups that were, it wasn't like, there was a moment when we shift from hanging out all as one group to hanging out in separate mm. groups. And I found that interesting because it was like, oh, we're beginning to bubble off into separate groups, whether it's around teams or locations or whether or not we have kids, that kind of thing. So that was an interesting moment to me. I was like, oh, it's not that I'm not being invited to hang out. It's just that we've turned into a larger organism. And then for sure, when we started having offices in countries other than America, that was an interesting one. And thinking about like, what is the culture that is Etsy and what what does it look like to make room for other kinds of cultures? Like for sure, just even the culture of, you know, an office in Hudson, New York versus an office in Brooklyn. And then furthermore, an office in, you know, Paris or Berlin or Toronto in addition to Brooklyn and how, like what is the balance between consistency and also allowing for people to be themselves? Did Etsy have uh, written values? We did, yeah. Did any of those change over time? Yeah, they did change over time. And one of my favorite projects that I worked on, it started as a, we used to do a hack week projects, which as a non-engineer, I was always into figuring out how we could bring like non-code building skills to the hack week. So I would be like, okay, who needs screen printing? Like who need like who, who needs something written? That kind of thing. But this was a really cool collaboration because we had these values. We had these five values and you know, I like them. People like them. They, they they did that thing where they were they weren't too like highfalutin, and we'd heard them enough that they existed for us. They didn't feel phony, but they were very abstract. So me and a few other and a few engineers built a an Etsy value award tool that was we had a like an online employee directory, and so it had a space where you could give someone a value award and you would drop down, select one of the five values, but then you'd have to say what it was they did to earn this value in your perspective. And so, for example, one of the values was we plan for the long term. And I, I gave someone a value award because they I, I watched them. They were like walking from the kitchen to their desk and uh, they were carrying their tray of food. They saw someone in front of them, their like napkin flew off their plate and landed on the ground. And rather than like tap this person and be like, you dropped your, you know, your dirty napkin, they went and just picked it up and put it in the trash and didn't like tell them. I just happened to catch this. And I was like, that was cool. Like that to me is an example of doing that because you're like, you're looking out for the space. You're just like cleaning up. It was a yeah, little bit of- Not asking like, for credit. Totally, kind of like a mitzvah. And um, 
I, that's why I wrote that down. Because so my, my larger mission with this was like, let's take these values and make them concrete. Like one of our values was keep it real. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> Wait, did that one get dropped? I, I don't know, actually. I don't know what Etsy's values are today. That's a, it's a good question. I wonder, because to me, keep it real. And it's evocative, but it can mean lots of different things. And my mm. point was, maybe there is a wrong way to interpret this value, but let's talk about what it means. Like to me, right. keep it real is goes back to feedback, saying the thing out loud mm-hmm. to being like, I have a concern about this and I'm not going to just keep quiet about it. But in order for that to happen, you know, like you need psychological safety, all these things. But yeah, my mission there was how can we call our own bluff and make these values real? And if we don't know, then let's rewrite them. <laughs> And do you still get a chance to work with Etsy? Um, yeah, I work every so often. Last year I did a, I came in and ran a, a big retrospective on a, a project. I come in here and then, which is really, it's really nice because I have all this historical knowledge and it's nice to be able to just kind of leverage it a little bit. Although when I come back, I'm, I'm usually there as like, you know, neutral facilitator kind of person. Right. But yeah, it's really nice. Etsy's a big part of how I learned about the things that I love best. Amazing. So what's next for you? I'm working on my company, Business Casual, which is really fun and exciting. It's sort of like my latest step in my journey of kind of like taking the work that I do and having it be something that is not so specific to me and my perspective, but a more general ideas of how we approach work and how what support looks like. Not reinventing the wheel, but maybe looking at these intractable issues and these problems that we see over time and coming at them with like a different perspective. And are you taking on new clients if folks want to get in touch with you? Yeah, I am taking on new clients. I'm usually working with a a range of kind of I have these like one-off things and I have bandwidth for those. And then I work with a few clients in a long-term way. But yeah, there's always, I love having the conversation because I think kind of like what we were talking about with conflict earlier, there's a presenting problem and then there's what's underneath. It's a conversation and I would love to have a conversation with anyone who's interested in talking further. And I, I feel like there's lots of ways to work together. I think it's an exciting time for thinking about how, how business is working and what it means to show up to work and give feedback and be comfortable. You know, Someone recently said to me, everyone wants to transform, but no one wants to change. And speaking to the change management, it's an inevitable part of growing a business, You know, maturing as, as a person. And I think we're all getting more and more facile with how to talk about these interlocking pieces of growth as a leader, growth of a company, maturity as, as a human being and how these things kind of weave together. And it can be really overwhelming, but my goal is like, okay, let's take these things one at a time and let's figure out how we can approach them in a way that doesn't make you feel like paralyzed or overwhelmed or isolated. Morgan, thanks so much for coming and talking to me today. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to meet you. I really appreciate you taking the time. If folks do want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? They can find me at uh, thisisbusinesscasual.com, and I'm on Twitter as Neon Morgan. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm, and you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay3D. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, 
Let's build something great together.